0: Live from London, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Djokovic delay, he's in the draw for the open, but will he be allowed to stay? Party platitudes, Boris Johnson's apology fails to end the PR crisis, and price punch. US inflation measures keep hitting multi-decade highs. It's Thursday, let's make a move. One well, month, once again, to first move. And what a week it's already been for global newsmakers. For Boris Johnson, a beauty party triggers regret, and the latest poll numbers making him sweat. Novak Djokovic's own lockdown lament still a reason to fret. Will the Australians prevent him playing even one open set? Despite hours of talks, the Russians maintain their Ukrainian threat. And Fedjay Joe Powell, a second term he will get. And to soaring inflation, he will be saying a firm yet. Sorry, Russian speakers. I apologize for that. To global stocks quickly, where there's no sure bet. That said, US futures and Europe looking pretty good with tech looking to build on three days of gains. Got to remember that for all the rate hike talk, financial conditions are still incredibly loose, particularly on a relative basis. That means investors will still buy the dip and wait to see if the talk becomes more like action, which means, in a sense, the strong growth environment where big businesses are doing well and have robust corporate profits allows them to shield them, I think, from less Fed support. Too, which should arguably be good for stocks. But remember, Mohammed Alireen's warning to us this week: the Fed risks a real market accident if it pulls support too far and too fast. Now, before the bell today, more inflation data with U.S. factory level prices rising almost 10 percent year over year in December. Although that's actually a touch lower than expected. This after the hottest consumer price read in 40 years in December. You remember that data from yesterday. Rays of hope, though, in China for both consumer and producer prices. They're easing. In the month of December, and from rising prices all over to the ongoing drama down under, we begin the drivers once again in Australia. The number one seed, Novak Djokovic, is in the door for the Australian Open, but will he get to play? The champion tennis player still awaiting a decision from the Australian Immigration Minister. Paula Hancocks is still in Melbourne for his two and following the story. I have to say, Paul, optically, the further we go, it gets more and more difficult for the government to make a decision. Now they're going to eventually, if they decide to do this, pull the number one seed from the Australian Open. What do we think the delay is here? Do they simply just want to make sure their case is watertight, their decision is watertight?
1: Well, certainly that, w- that would make sense, Julia. We-, we do know as well that Novak Djokovic, just a couple of days ago, when he admitted to the errors he'd made on his travel declaration and also having uh, uh, having been in public and done a, a media interview whilst positive with COVID-19, he did give his lawyers, gave more documents to the government, uh, suppl- um, explaining his situation, uh, we understand. So potentially that's taking a little longer. They're going through those documents as well. Uh, but we really don't know. Know exactly why there is such a delay. We do know he's still considering it. We do know the Immigration Minister Alex Hawke has the power to revoke that visa. Now, Prime Minister Scott Morrison today was asked about it, as he is every day he is able to be asked about it. And he said it's up to Alex Hawke. He said the policy is in place uh, and he hopes that his government will uphold that policy, uh, pointing out once again that you have to be vaccinated against COVID 19 to come into this country or you have to have a medical exemption as to why you cannot be uh, vaccinated, a medical reason uh, for that. So certainly Scott Morrison is making his uh, opinion clear, also pointing out there's a difference between the visa and the vaccination requirements. So even if you have a visa early on, that doesn't automatically mean that you will be allowed into the country. You have to have those vaccination requirements as well. So this is just dragging on at this point as we are just a few days away from the start of the Australian Open. The draw has been uh, done. We uh, have seen that Novak Djokovic was number one seed. He's part of that draw, uh, playing against a fellow Serb in round one. Uh, So from that point of view, it looks like any other grand slam. Of course, it is anything but, because it could all change for Novak Djokovic, who is every day still going to the court, still training in order to try and retain his title.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's going to be incredibly noisy and distracting, I think, either way, for him and for everybody else when, when this decision finally comes through. And, of course, there is no time limit on the time that the immigration minister can take, as you've said, to, to make this decision. I mean, I'm speculating, but I would have to assume that an unofficial deadline would be Monday when the matches actually begin. Is there any speculation, and I'm sure there's plenty, Paula, that actually this decision will come perhaps by the end of this week, if not this weekend?
1: There was plenty of speculation the decision was going to come today. It was going to be Thursday. There was no way it was going to be later than Thursday. And Thursday has now come and gone. So the speculation is now the decision will come Friday because surely it has to come before a weekend. Surely it has to become before the, the Australian Open. But quite simply, this decision does not have a deadline. Of course, the optics would be uh, not good at all for the government if they allowed the Australian Open to, to start with Novak Djokovic, playing if he manages to play a game and then to make the decision to, uh, to revoke that visa. Uh, but but the fact is the optics haven't been great already for the Australian government or for the world's tennis number one player uh, or for Tennis Australia. Nobody is coming out of this uh, looking squeaky clean. Nobody has done well out of this entire debacle. And you make an interesting and I think important point, Julia, the fact that it is distracting for all the other players. They're not being asked about their form, their hopes their, uh, their chances in, t- in the, uh, the tournament. They're being asked what they think about Novak Djokovic. Yeah, that's actually a
0: really great point. Get back to the sport. Mistakes have been made all around. A decision needs to come. Paula Hancocks, great to have you with us. Thank you. The UK Prime Minister is facing fresh calls to quit after he admitted attending a drinks party at Number 10 during lockdown. He said he believed the Garden Gathering to be a work event Prime Minister cancelled a public appearance today after a member of his family tested positive for COVID. summer Abdelaziz joins me now. We don't want anyone to catch COVID, but I have to say I think this was probably the most welcome COVID case the Prime Minister's um, ever met to avoid having to make a public appearance. summer let's take a step back here because I'm in London, so I'm seeing a lot of the speculation that's being made and the suggestion and I'm being asked about whether or not he is going to be either removed as Prime Minister or resigned. So can you just talk us through what the process would be if indeed there were going to be some kind of confidence vote or he perhaps would be in some way removed as leader of the party and, and the prime minister of the country. What's the process?
2: Julia, absolutely. It's the day after the big apology. And now I think Prime mm. Minister Boris Johnson in isolation is thinking about next steps strategy. Right. So what are our options here? Well, the options are he could be pushed out, he could step down or he could try to ride it out. Let's start with the beginning one resigning the Prime Minister taking action himself putting a resignation out himself that's always a possibility except with Prime Minister Boris Johnson we know that he is someone who holds on to power he rides out storms he has survived scandal after scandal I would put that in the absolutely unlikely if not impossible cat- category then you have the possibility of being pushed out now that would require a mutiny from conservative lawmakers from his own lawmakers. 15% of conservative MPs would have to submit letters to what's called the 1922 Committee. This is a body that oversees Tory leadership. That comes out to about 54% MPs. It's a significant number. And so far, we only know of two confirmed MPs who have written a letter. But here's kind of the twist to this. The 1922 committee keeps everything secret until they've reached that threshold of 15%. So it could be that we don't know the whole story there. But overall, what we're seeing is that the prime minister's cabinet is backing him. Is Yes, there are MPs calling for his resignation, but by no means has it turned into a huge rebellion, into a huge mutiny that could trigger a no-confidence vote. Oh, and that leaves the last option, riding out the storm. This is something the prime minister has been able to do time and time again, scandal after scandal. But here's the thing with this one, Julia. This is a scandal that appears to keep on hitting the prime minister over and over again. Remember where it started. First, it was just reports of a Christmas party. Then there was a leaked video of Downing Street staff laughing about a Christmas party. Then there was a picture of Prime Minister Boris Johnson himself at an alleged garden party. Now we have an apology of him being in place. And there's still that dizzying array of allegations spanning from summer 2020 to winter of 2020. There is a lot there that could potentially pop up again. Be yet another hit for the Prime Minister. So right now you are looking at a Prime Minister who is increasingly vulnerable, increasingly weak. Remember, he has the lowest popularity rating since he took office. He's had the biggest Tory rebellion against him in Parliament since he took office. The question is, can he hold on to power? And the final question here I'm going to ask is who would take his job if he did step mm. down,
0: Julia? Yes, good question. We shall reconvene on that. I say down but not out. Salma Abdelaziz. Thank you for that. So, Boris Johnson, in a political message you were hearing there, central bankers under inflationary dis- duress just released numbers show U.S. prices at the factory level rising almost 10% year over year last month, the biggest monthly gain in all of 2021. This, of course, comes after a hot read on consumer price inflation yesterday. Now, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Giogeva, told Quest means Business Wednesday inflation won't be easy to control. Nobody made the
3: connection that multiple factors are pushing prices up, like labor markets have have changed, Uh, climate shocks have made food more expensive in many places. All of this combined made inflation sticky
0: and uh, uh, we are where we are. Christine Romans is back with us, having been rudely interrupted discussing this yesterday. You've forgiven me. Thank you. Um, We were just engaging in what I thought was a very important conversation, not only about high prices today, and you can discuss what's driving that, but also the expectations, people's expectations of where inflation is going to be in the next six to 12 months. And that's far higher than what the Federal Reserve thinks and what investors think too. And we know the Federal Reserve watches that incredibly closely.
4: Yeah, because perception is so important here because perception can drive consumer behavior, right? And right. The consumer consumer patterns. And it's so interesting to me that people feel so pessimistic here. Two years, almost three years now starting into COVID. There is a, a COVID exhaustion that I think colors their optimism overall about the economy. Also, when you see these higher wages and you see job gains and you see good things happening in the economy, it is the daily grind of paying more for everything um, that really saps that up optimism, and eats into the benefits of higher wages. So that is something psychologically, I think, that is really weighing on American consumers. And you can see that certainly in so many of the polls. There's a lot of discussion here in the U.S. about what the Biden administration can do about it. If you look at the front page of some uh, right-leaning newspapers today, you'll you'll see them calling it Biden inflation. But I would remind everyone, this is a worldwide trend we're seeing in higher prices, factory-level and consumer-level prices. Uh, And it is the Federal Reserve who has the task to try to tamp Down a high inflation, the Fed seems to think it's going to be able to get things under control um, over the next year, year, and and some months beyond that. But people, when you look at the surveys of people, aren't quite so sure. And I do think that it is that COVID exhaustion, Julia, that is coloring everyone's Mm -hmm. expectations of just of just about everything. When you look at the producer prices from today, as I sure I'm sure you were too, looking for any sign of a peak because that is the big question right now. When will we know? The peak prices are in here, you know, and of course, if we knew the answer to that, we'd both of us would be on a Caribbean island right now that we own. <laughs> oh, yeah, we don't we know own. the answer to that question. No, I don't think anybody <laughs> does. Yeah. Peak bottleneck and peak prices. We'll wait for that Caribbean island
0: moment. Um, Christine. <laughs> you raised so many great points there. Um, and I was just trying to decide which one to um, which one to talk about. Um, and you raise a great point, I think, as well about the Biden blame that's going on for prices. My, the way that my father used to help me understand inflation was he used to describe it as too much money money chasing too few goods. And if exactly. you chuck a whole lot of money into a system with the kind of bottlenecks that we've seen, then you do create inflation and rising prices. Um, do you think they have to hike four times to your point about who has to respond here this
4: year in order to do it? I mean, isn't money still relatively easy right now I mean they're still they're still pulling their foot off the gas from from all of this quantitative easing and then they have to start tightening so I'm not sure how that's going to play out I do know mm-hmm. that if they make a mistake it's it's a day it's dangerous territory to your point about too much money chasing too few goods two things here happening at once right this un- unleashed consumer demand at a time that the stuff isn't actually there in many cases so the pandemic in two different ways both by screwing up the supply supply chains around the world, and by unleashing all of this demand from people for the same things at the same time, has really, really fed into this in a way I don't think uh, we could have predicted. Also, we have not had inflation, meaningful inflation, in in the U.S. economy in a generation, right? You got to go back to the 70s and the, the early 80s, and that was really bad, right? And so I think that people, when they hearken back to inflation, they think of those bad old days in the early 80s and just what it took to, um, to fight that inflation. And that's another reason psychologically why they're just so scared about the big I word.
0: Yeah. Christine Romans, always great to chat to you and uh, thank you for making me smarter.
4: Thank you. <laughs> Happy New Year.
0: Mm, to you too. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Britain's Prince Andrew is facing the possibility of a civil trial in the United States on accusations of sex abuse. Virginia Dufresne claims she was 17 years old when Jeffrey Epstein forced her to have sex with his friends, including the prince. On Wednesday, a New York judge denied a motion by Prince Andrew's lawyers to dismiss the lawsuit. CNN World Correspondent Max Foster joins us now. Max, great to have you with us. This broke, this news broke during the show, so it was a little bit of a scramble. So now that we've had 24 hours to, to digest, I just wanted to ask you what the next six months looks like, both for Prince Andrew and... And of course, the royal family. And do we think this firmly draws a line under any hope of a return to perhaps royal duties of some form and charitable patronage too?
5: I think it's very difficult in terms of returning to royal life. So much damage has been done to Prince Andrew's reputation and will only continue to be done if this continues as it is. Uh, Even today, there was a letter from many military veterans to the Queen asking the Queen, as commander of the armed forces, to take away Prince Andrew's titles. So a real groundswell of opinion against Prince Andrew moving back into public life, even though he hasn't even been found officially guilty of anything yet. He does have various courses of action available to him and none of them are good. Uh, So the first one would be to appeal this latest uh, ruling that the case can't be thrown out of court. Uh, I think that's, uh, according to all the legal experts, very slim chances of him winning that appeal. The other options are ignore the case, And then it potentially goes to a default judgment and potentially damages having to be paid by Andrew. That will be a blot on his career. It'd be a blot on the royal brand as well. He could engage with the process and the case, in which case he'll effectively have to hang out his dirty laundry in public, as one lawyer described it to me. Very difficult. Also, it will be overshadowing the Queen's Jubilee celebrations this year, no doubt of that. So none of those options are particularly good. The best option is probably some sort of settlement, according to the legal and royal experts I've been speaking to. Uh, So Prince Andrew uh, would um, come to some sort of agreement with Virginia Dufresne. It would no doubt be for a huge amount of money. We question where that money will come from, but also her lawyer was on the BBC last night, uh, suggesting that that isn't a financial settlement. Isn't her priority here? Uh, she really wants her day in court, and she wants to represent many people who've been in a similar situation to her. So it does sound as though she wants this go to tr- to go to trial. So none of the options are good for Prince Andrew, but the least worst option. It does seem might not be available to him for a very difficult situation for him, Julia.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you. No good options for the royal family, too. Max Foster, thank you so much for that. OK, so to come here on First Move, booster shots before Suntory time. The CEO of the Japanese drinks giant on why he thinks the third shot is key to recovery. And the genie definitely out of the bottle when it comes to the metaverse. We speak to a CEO making celebrities' wishes come true in the virtual world. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. New COVID infections in the Japanese capital Tokyo hit a four month high on Thursday. Earlier this week, Japan extended an entry ban on foreigners until the end of February as it battles an Omicron surge. And last month, the CEO of one of the nation's biggest companies called for the rapid rollout of boosters. Only around 1% of the population has received a top up shot so far. And he joins us now. Joining us is Tak Nianami. He's the CEO of Centauri Holdings. Tak, it's always great to have you on the show. Happy New Year.
2: Talk, to, year. Me, to,
0: yeah. talk to me about your point about top up vaccine shots. Do you believe this is the best way to ensure recovery?
3: Yes, it's one of the best ways. Nothing, only the uh, booster shots, uh, which is now underway. Second thing is definitely we have to uh, expedite the COVID treatment pills uh, to the uh, patients who got uh, the infection. But the reality of our country is like this. The number of daily COVID cases has been growing rapidly, but the severe cases and their fatality rate are far lower than the Delta virus. For example, today, We have zero um, death and uh, just uh, five to six serious cases. So the situation is not as bad as at the time of the Delta variant. So we have to be uh, calm and uh, we have to reinvigorate consumption as soon as possible. That's what I'm urging the government, not to reintroduce another state of emergency. And... uh, Again, we have to ex- expedite the booster shots, which is still low percentage, as you explained.
0: But your point, I think, is very important in terms of the relative degree of and severity of illness that we're seeing. And and I look at some of the comments that you were making before the Omicron wave hit, and I saw that your business, you're seeing around 70 to 80 percent of the levels of demand that you were seeing Pre-pandemic, so so the recovery was coming back. You were seeing a significant improvement in in your operations and in demand for your products.
3: Exactly in Japan, uh, we saw the uh, huge pickup uh, uh, business uh, uh, in consumption, especially on um, uh, on premise around the time of Christmas. So mm. we've been uh, so much hopeful that uh, we can have the good year. But uh, Omicron uh, uh, came in, and then the government took a very harsh action. So I feel um, Japan is uh, taking the overall, I mean, overly uh, cautious uh, actions uh, to tackle Omicron virus. Uh, so it's a uh, concerning because we expect a lot to this uh, year in this country uh, by leveraging the pent-up demand. Because a household accumulated as much as it, $30, $300 billion as their saving accounts. So consumers in Japan have a lot of cash and they want to use it. So that's a strong hope.
0: OK, I'm reading between the lines. We have to learn to live with this virus. Are you saying that your advice as a top business leader, based on what you're seeing is they're being too restrictive and perhaps some of the controls that they've put in place are simply too much.
3: Yeah, I think uh, too much. But we have to be based on the scientific data and experience of other countries. But right. seemingly, uh, Omicron is not uh, lethal as, as much as uh, uh, Delta. So we have to see the data as soon as possible. And then... At, for example, we should ease uh, the border control, uh, especially for business, because uh, we we shut down the country more or less. Uh, we, we don't accept the people from abroad. It's not good for Japanese economy.
0: Yeah, it's a very important point. Um, something else, of course, that will help the demand recovery story is wage increases. And I know the government is pushing businesses like yourselves to raise wages by 3% or more. Is that something that you can do at Suntory? Do you think this is something that the economy can withstand, wage increases of those kind of levels?
3: I think uh, 3% is quite possible for the the companies like us. And we have to negotiate uh, a labor union. So I can't say now, but I'm very much positive about going forward to pick up economy, especially consumption. And uh, in that... uh, uh, sense. I'm so concerned about uh, inflation, which hasn't uh, gotten in our country for 33 years. So we have to think about the inflationary scenario. If inflation rate is above 2%, we definitely increase at least uh, 2% of uh, the entire wage level in this country so that we can avoid uh, stagflation. So we are so much concerned about the new stage of our economy based on the current uh, uh, world uh, 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 demand, uh, you know, which is very strong. And Japan is uh, not uh, an exception.
0: Yes, makes sense to me. Now, Suntory wouldn't exist, Suntory's products wouldn't exist without water. And I know you're incredibly focused on your sustainability targets too. And in recent days, you've announced an acceleration of your water intensity use targets. And I actually saw that you beat your last targets by 10 years, quite frankly. So I think the message is you need to be more ambitious and you are. Talk me through your your new targets.
3: Yeah, well, it is a forecast that about 40% of the population in the world suffer from Mm -hmm. water shortages in 2050 due to climate change and population growth. And water is one of nature's uh, greatest gift. So we decided to upgrade our water intensity by 50% and replenish more water than we used in our own plants globally by 2050. As a matter of fact, we've been working on this almost for 20 years by setting up a local watershed conservation, which is called a natural water sanctuary, and education for children. The first point is uh, we need to replenish more than uh, double the amount of water we used in Japan. We completed this one. So we are moving toward the uh, international I and mean, global expansion. Like uh, we started in the United States, India, Mexico, and France, working with local communities and universities to achieve the upgraded uh, uh, our target. So uh, we are already underway um, so that uh, uh, we want to... Uh, raise awareness in the world that uh, water shortages will come and uh, we have to be careful. We have to take action together. So we want to lead this initiative.
0: Sir, hats off to you. We all need to be doing more of this in our personal lives as big businesses, as small businesses um, and stronger, more accelerated targets are the right way to do it. Tack, great to chat to you, sir. As always, the CEO of Suntory Holdings. Thank Thank you. Stay safe and we'll see you soon. Thank you. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move live from London this week. And U.S. stock markets are back up and running tech, trying for a full straight day of gains. Quite a turnaround after briefly falling into 10% correction territory in Monday's trading session. All this despite another hot read on U.S. factory level inflation today. Oil's rise also playing into inflationary concerns crude little change today as you can see. Brent, though, remains close to three-month highs. Russian supplies also adding to the fears in that market. Some in the options market betting will see $100 a barrel oil too in the not-too-distant future. And many Americans, of course, feeling pain at the pump. The average US price for regular gas is now $3.30, up more than 40% from a year ago, according to AAA. The American Petroleum Institute says rising prices are in part due to policies aimed at restricting production, a few U.S. oil and natural gas. In its 2022 outlook, the API also cites the challenges Europe faces with reliance on nations like Russia for fuel and why U.S. energy independence must be protected. Joining us now is Mike Summers, President and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. Mike, always great to have you on the show. Happy New Year. Much of what we're talking about on a daily basis cuts to the core of what you're talking about in your 2022 outlook. And that is that the American public actually are more frightened of rising prices and inflation than they are of COVID at this moment. And fuel prices are a huge part of that.
6: Absolutely, Julia, and great to be with you again. I do think we have major concerns about some of the policy issues that are being pursued by this administration, which, while at the same time they're asking for more oil production, All of their policies are actually pointing to uh, dampening production in the United States. In fact, just this week, they came out with a new policy to restrict production in Alaska at the National Petroleum Reserve. So from the beginning of this administration, really, to just this week, all of their policy signals are for the United States producers to stop producing oil and natural gas here at home.
0: I mean, you can understand what they're trying to do because they're trying to shift the investment and their money into renewables. The challenge, and we've talked about this in the past, is a timing mismatch. If you underinvest in one that you require in the short to medium term, then it doesn't matter how much you're investing in the future, you're going to have a crunch in the short to medium term in terms of prices. Well, that's
6: exactly right. And, and so often, Julia, what we've actually found is that when you're making an energy transition, and we've been going through energy transitions throughout uh, world history, When you're making an energy transition, it is much less about transition and more about addition. We're gonna be using more oil and gas as populations grow and energy needs grow than uh, we do today. Uh, And we need to continue to make those investments. And unfortunately, there is historic underinvestment going on in the oil and gas sector right now, which could lead to future price shocks. And that is a real concern that investors should have and that consumers should have as we look at pump prices and natural gas prices, which are at historic levels in Europe in particular.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this is an important point. And I think that the difference in As I discussed in the introduction, energy independence in the United States versus some of the challenges that Europe faces with where they get their energy is an important point. But I want to get back to what you said, because I'd like to quantify it if we can. And I'm sure you guys have done the work. Um, The dust has settled now on COP26. Even if we assume that all the commitments that have been made there are fulfilled, do you have a sense of how much oil and gas that we're going to need in the coming years anyway, even if all the commitments are fulfilled?
6: Yeah, in fact, uh, the International Energy Agency has done that themselves. And what if we if we meet every commitment? If every country meets every commitment of the Paris Climate Accords, more almost 50% of the world's energy is still going to come from natural gas and oil in 2040. And that means we need more investment in this sector. We need to make sure that consumers are protected from price spikes like we're, like we're seeing right now. And that means investments, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. And unfortunately, that investment continues to go down. We wanna make sure that it continues to go up so that consumers are protected, while at the same time, we need to be reducing emissions. And that's a top priority for us as well. In fact, the American Petroleum Institute came out with a policy just last year on how you can continue to invest in American oil and gas while at the same time, reduce emissions. And we have a good record. In fact, in the power sector, uh, just in the last 15 years, we've been able to reduce emissions by 40%. And most of that is because of a fuel switch that has gone on from coal to natural gas. We wanna be able to continue to export that environmental progress throughout the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, we should be doing this on a global basis. I think that's part of the point. If we're all trying to go at it in different directions, um, we're sort of fighting against each other. There will be those and you get plenty of criticism saying, look, you're talking your book, you're resistant because you represent an industry that's dirty and it's not doing enough to transition and it gets loads of subsidies. Um, you've had all the criticisms in the past. I would argue, why can't we do both? Why can not you as the API say, fine, we are going to transition to a zero carbon world. We just have to go there in a smart manner, and that's simply going to take some time and we have to get the investment right. Is that not part of what you're saying? I'm just not sure you're heard.
6: Absolutely. In fact, uh, if you look at what actually is going on in Europe right now, where they have these historically high gas prices, uh, they're somewhat insulated by them even being higher as a consequence of U.S. liquefied natural gas going to Europe right now. Uh, The same is true in Asia also. Uh, The world is really supported and insulated in some ways because of U.S. LNG production, which has really had explosive growth in the last decade. Uh, We need to make sure that there are multiple suppliers for the world's energy needs. Uh, Increasingly, uh, that supplier of choice is the United States but we have to continue to invest in those suppliers and invest in this industry so that they can supply lower carbon energy in the form of liquefied natural gas to the rest of the world. Uh, We're actually seeing right now that Putin is turning off the gas uh, to Europe right now. Uh, And we need to make sure that uh, we have multiple suppliers to all uh, countries so that they have access to lower carbon uh, natural gas uh, which it, which is really leading the world in environmental uh, in making sure the world can meet its environmental commitments mm.
0: and and your point about that was the international energy Agency chief saying that actually russia's restricting them for political reasons ahead of of course the talks with um, NATO over Ukraine um very quickly we have about a minute um Mike can your industry and sector clean up quicker can it get cleaner quicker
6: well, you think about what we've done already. In fact, I'm asking uh, you know, if you this can get quicker.
0: I know what you've done. I'm asking if you can accelerate this. Throw me a bone. We're working
6: on that every single day. In fact, <laughs> this it. is the industry that's that's pioneered uh, carbon capture, utilization, storage technologies. We want to continue to make investments uh, in carbon capture. We're seeking to partner with the federal government and the Biden administration and other world governments to make sure that we can continue to cut methane emissions in particular. But carbon capture has to be part of the solution as well. We were encouraged by what we saw from the bipartisan infrastructure bill in Mm -hmm. new investments in carbon capture. And we want to continue that progress as well. What we asked for in the annual API State of American Energy was to continue to be able to partner with this administration and with Congress to make those investments. Uh, We don't want to have an adversarial relationship with the Biden administration. We want to work with them on meeting the climate goals while at the same time addressing the energy needs, not just of the United States, but of the world.
0: Yeah, we have to work together. Mike, always interesting to chat. Come back soon, please, because I want to talk to you about cybersecurity risks for you guys as well. I've run out of time. I'm being told to be quiet. So I have to say thank you and let you go and come back soon. Mike Summers, thank you, president and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute there. Okay, still ahead. Reality goes virtual. We speak to the head of a company teaming up with stars like Shawn Mendes and Rihanna to give rock and roll a metaverse makeover. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Imagine the thrill of getting up close to some of the world's biggest stars from the comfort of your own home. Yes, that's the goal of avatar technology company Genies, which has teamed up with some of the world's largest businesses, including music company Universal, to give pop icons like JLo, Shawn Mendes and Ava Max their own metaverse personas. Fans will be able to engage with the stars across NFTs, non-fungible tokens, gaming and other platforms. And it's all the brainchild of one man, and that man is Akash Nigam. He's the CEO and founder of Genies, and he joins us now. Akash, fantastic to have you on the show. This is very exciting. First and foremost, give me the vision. Why did you think this was the moment to create these kind of avatars and let people explore a different kind of world?
7: I mean, listen, we've been building avatars since 2016, so I would say we haven't been chasing a moment. We've been building for this moment for quite some time and really studying um, I think the younger demographic and really where they're trending towards, which is really trying to express an authentic version of themselves. And a lot of the social media and platforms today really get away from that, right? Like the founding philosophy of the internet is to be exactly who you want to be. And places like Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and so forth where you have to, re- you have to use your real world persona and you have to be able to showcase a different facade that maybe doesn't match with exactly what your insides represent, get away from that philosophy and so we hope that avatars can be that safe haven that allow you to express yourself from every different um, segment of your imagination and serve as your emotional surrogate
0: Oh, there's so much in there that we're going to explore. Um, but one of the first things when I was reading this, I was like, hang on a second. If I have an avatar of myself, or one of these superstars, very different, has an avatar of themselves, who actually owns, who has the ownership rights of that? And I know you have a big announcement to make today about how this part's going to work. So just talk me through this.
7: I mean, this is probably the biggest announcement that we've made as a company since inception. Um, and really, I think, Marking the uh, milestone of probably one of the first times a centralized organization is now relinquishing control and ownership of its avatar and of its products to allow users and talent to own their avatars and their products for the very first time. So Justin Bieber, Rihanna, a user like myself or yourself, if you create an avatar with genius, if you create digital goods with wearable and wearables with genius, if you create um, a virtual space that we're going to roll out soon as well, interactive experiences, any of these creations, the user and the talent now owns for themselves. They can commercialize it as they see fit. They can create uh, a virtual business. They can uh, host concerts and shows. They can create a digital wearable business and fashion line. Whatever their heart desires, they now own. And I think that's the path of the future. And we want to be able to pioneer that.
0: So you're going to allow people to have this avatar. They can go monetize it however they like. What's your part in that? Other than taking initial payment, I'm assuming, for creating the avatar and you'll go on to build a a sort of bigger world as part of a bigger metaverse. But do you take a cut of the money as they continue to monetize?
7: I mean, we don't even take any type of cut up front. Um, You know, we're big believers that uh, right now the the successful companies are going to be the ones that create tools that empower individuals and humans to create their own universes and their own ecosystems. So right now you're seeing this common theme of this trend where the incumbents are translating their Web2 properties and creating Mm. these closed virtual Web3 ecosystems. And that kind of gets away from the point. The point of decentralization is about freedom. It's about being able to empower individuals and creators to be able to uh, own everything that they create in this digital and fantastic world, which they're currently getting ripped out on right now. Um, And so uh, we're going to be taking a cut uh, by our smart contract as we develop it over the next couple of years. But um, it's nothing really um, outside of the norm of what you currently see with current NFT projects that exist today.
0: Yeah, it's about resetting the economics of of creativity. And and I think owning that yourself and being able to monetize. Akash, the, the, part, the reason why you built this company is very fascinating to me too as a, as a founder. And I know you've raised a lot of money in order to continue to build this. Um, because I think for non-Gen Z people, they look at this and go, but why would we want to be part of a metaverse, a digital world? We want to get out there and do the things that we did. And for you, it was very personal in that you, you sort of had social anxiety, you suffered from depression. And this was a way for you to, to be who you were in a digital sense and, and be honest about who you were. Can you explain that for me? Because I do think this sort of changes people's view of of what the digital world represents, at least to some people.
7: Yeah, I mean, look, listen, I grew up on the internet, so I know the negative connotations. It's Look, there's amazing benefits that come with it, right? Like interoperability, to, the ability for me to connect with as many people as possible, but the negative connotations is that there's a lot of social pressures. There's a lot of posturing. Um, mm. and it's, and it's just difficult to exist within social circles and you get inhibited by, uh, the physical world pressures and, and some of the social status that you're trying to accrue over time. Um, and so, you know, I've always felt comfortable behind a keyboard, right? So if I was in school when I was growing up in middle school or in high school, um, I would be kind of nervous to maybe talk to a girl or I'd be kind of nervous to go, uh, you know, show off in front of friends or communicate with friends or whatever. But as soon as I got home and I got into AIM and I got behind my username, I became the most outgoing and gregarious character that there was. And I was able to showcase, again, kind of my my true personality. And so I think that the avatar kind of takes that a step further, right? All of a sudden, you're not limited by just photo, video, and text. You're able to create this manifestation of yourself in this very fantastical art form. Um, And I think there's also this common misconception and notion that the avatar is supposed to completely replace your physical being. Unless Elon comes out with like Neuralink V5 and we're reincarnated as avatars permanently, our physical bodies are, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Our physical body is always going to remain. And if that's the case, the avatar is not here to replace the human. It's here to amplify the serotonin releases that you might experience in the real world. And that happens with social media. And I think a balance is required with social media. For example, if I get a like on Instagram, that's the same, uh, you know, that's a serotonin release that I would get if I got a compliment at dinner in the real world. Okay. Well, avatars all of a sudden you can interact and you can virtually experience things. So it takes that like button again, 10 steps along the, uh, along the path, but you have to be able to balance the two. And it's about amplifying the best experiences and then being able to extract again, your authentic self and your side.
0: It's going to be fascinating to watch your progress. Come back and talk soon because, as always, I have about 20 more questions to ask you. We've barely scratched the surface, but we shall reconvene. Akesh, thank you so so much for coming on the show. Great to chat to you. Okay, next on First Move, from a blind date to no end date in sight. The Chinese couple whose first encounter wasn't quite as brief as they expected. That's next. And finally, on First Move, COVID lockdowns have tested even the strongest of relationships. But in China, two people have really risen to the occasion. When this lady went to meet a blind date for dinner at his home, neither of them thought it would immediately turn into a longer affair. A sudden lockdown under China's zero COVID policy means she's been stuck at his house, turning the first date into a potential date with disaster. Selena Wang has more. Selena... There's so many things that I love about this story. The fact that her parents think she's getting old and that she has to be set up on 10 different dates. But um, what do you do in this kind of situation? You go on social media and you talk about it.
8: Yeah, Julia, and it's become an absolute viral sensation. (laughs) We've seen the sudden snap lockdowns in China because of growing COVID outbreaks lead to all sorts of disruptions, including for romance. And for this woman, a quick get-to-know-you dinner turned into living with the man for days on end. It happened in Zhengzhou, which is the capital of a central province in China. On January 6th, she was set to meet her blind date for a meal. After the meal, she got ready to go home, but then suddenly the neighborhood went into lockdown lockdown and she could not leave. Now, China regularly locks down communities, even when just a single COVID-19 case was found. So the woman started documenting her experience on social media. She was posting videos of her living with him, of him cooking meals for her. He was sweeping the floor, posting videos of him working on his laptop. And they have gone absolutely viral in China, even becoming a top trending topic on Weibo, which is China's Twitter-like platform. She even gave an interview to state media in which she said she was in Zhengzhou ahead of the lunar New York holiday and her family had set up with several suitors to meet with while she was there. But it Turns out her videos have also led to some embarrassment. She said in a later post that she had taken down the original video because her date was receiving some calls from friends. Now, as of Thursday, it's unclear if she is still at the man's home. Zhengzhou, the city that she's in now, has reported now more than 100 COVID cases. They've shut down non-essential businesses. This is as we see China doubling down on that zero-COVID strategy through these lockdowns, mass testing, contact tracing, and surveillance, Julia.
0: Oh, but Selena, we have to discuss how she described him. I mean, some of these quotes are absolutely brilliant. During quarantine, I feel that apart from him being reticent like a wooden mannequin, everything else about him is pretty good. He cooks, cleans the house and works, although his cooking isn't very good. I mean, I thought she was going to found true love. She basically calls him an inarticulate wooden mannequin who can't <laughs> cook.
8: <laughs> uh, it's... She gave some pretty harsh commentary, very honest. <laughs> it sounds like she wasn't pulling any punches, but I want to read this other, this other quote she had said. She said, quote, right now I'm still at the man's house. This was on Monday, Julia. She said, he's an inarticulate and honest person and he doesn't talk much. And then she ended with this, Julia. Thanks for your <laughs> attention. I hope the pandemic will end soon and that single girls can find a
0: relationship soon. Welcome to the world of the modern woman. Date one thousand one hundred and seventy-one <laughs> <laughs> Selina thank you. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Linda King Card is next.